Welcome everybody to the um, Sport and Leisure History Seminar uh, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History in conjunction with the Institute of Historical Research and welcome to the first of these sessions of 2023 and I'm very pleased to introduce um, Eric Blakely um, who's presenting his research which is a follow-up on um, his master's uh, dissertation which he uh, completed at De Montfort University about um, British and Irish athletes at the 1908 Olympics. Um, Eric is a journalist who is now teaching at uh, Further Education College, so raising the next generation of journalists. And we were just talking prior to going on air that he's accumulated a database of 750 athletes who, um, who uh, represented Britain and Ireland at the Olympics. So really um, somebody who is not just uh, doing original research, but is also building up something that I'm sure will be of use to future generations of historians. Um, but that's enough of me. So Eric, uh, take it away. I've already given a number of talks on the methodologies that I used for my master's dissertation, which was aimed at investigating a claim Tony Collins made um, in a Radio 4 podcast, Sport and the British, in which he said that most of the competitors who competed for Great Britain and Ireland in the 1908 Olympics um, were middle class. So I'm not actually going to um, dwell on the methodology, although, you know, a lot came from it about how you can access things online these days and the cost of it and so on. Um, instead, I'm, I'm going to cut to the chase and um, say that um, what Collins said basically is true. You know, I, I, I emailed him and he was it was very you know, he's very generous with his time. And, and actually, he said his comment was somewhat off the cuff. And, um, yeah, he's obviously far too modest to admit it, but it wasn't really off the cuff. It, it was the result of you know, years of studying sports history. Um, nevertheless, as I sort of stated in my dissertation, his and other people's assumptions that people were middle class um, was based on anecdotal evidence. And I, and I tried to take a more quantitative approach. Uh, basically, I used census returns, uh, school university registers. I looked at people's lineage, who their parents were, whether they were titled. And um, using that, in inverted commas, I was able to prove, as I said, what Collins said was right, that most of the people who took part um, were middle class. Uh, I used an amalgamation of methods to decide on someone's class. So I looked at whether they were titled, I looked at their profession, their parents' profession, the university or military academy they uh, attended, if they'd attended one, and the schools uh, that they'd attended. Um, I then looked at the remaining athletes. So I first of all looked at whether people were titled and if they were titled, I said straight away, yeah, you're, you're upper class. Although I was a bit more generous with my classifications, because if people went on to become titled or if they married into a titled family, I still, I still allowed them to be titled, um, in part to push Tony Collins's um, thesis to the limit. You know, if I could find out that there were 75, then he was obviously blown out the water. Uh, but if I could only find 10%, which is what I, I ended up coming up with, then obviously the others had to be middle class or, or lower class. Um, as I said, I used mainly uh, the census returns and people's jobs 
to equate their profession to a social class. And, and Ray Vampler, who's, who's used this a lot and others who followed him, has a, a wonderful quote in Pay Up and Play the Game, in which he says, whilst it's acknowledged occupation by itself is an imperfect indicator of social classification, it is accepted as a reasonable proxy. Uh, doing all this, building up this database has been a huge task, um, but I, I believe it's been very effective. And um, depending on, on whose research you use, uh, the British squad uh, was anywhere between 730, 750 odd people. Um, the next biggest um, team at the 1908 Games was France with 209 athletes and the United States with 122. And in fact, I don't know how much of you, any of you know about the 1908 Games, but Britain's presence was just so pervasive that in some competitions there were actually little or no foreign competition. Um, so perhaps it's not surprising that in 1908, Britain topped the medals table for the one and only time. In fact, one writer, Thames, claims Great Britain was so dominant, the country won more medals than all the other nations put together. There is a little bit of dispute over that, uh, but I'm not going to dwell on that. So guys, um, there is also sort of some debate over how many sports there actually were. In the official report, I think there are 20, but um, when Mallon comes to look at them, uh, he, comes up to, he comes up with 24 sports because he splits football into football and rugby and he splits swimming up into swimming, diving uh, and water polo. And there's something else he splits up, I think. Oh, yeah, he splits up athletics into athletics and tug of war. So I don't know if, if what you can see on your screen, half my screen is obscured on the far side as the people who are in polo and rowing and so on. But for the, the, my dissertation, I drop a list of 753 people. And if your maths is really good and you look at that, you'll see that actually the total there is greater. Um, and that's because uh, seven athletes competed in two sports and one athlete, an Irishman, Ned Barrett, competed in three. So as I say, they don't quite tot up. Um, the research, so going back to Collins, my research showed that uh, using my very wide ranging definition of upper class, that only about 73 athletes, that's about 10% of the team, could be considered upper class. Having said that, uh, although this seems relatively small, it is disproportionate given that it's estimated around only 800 families made up Britain's aristocracy at the turn of the 20th century. And interestingly, of the 73 upper-class athletes, 61 were men, that's about 10% of the male team, and 12 were women. So that was almost 30% of the women's contingent, which of course was very small. We'll return to that in a moment. So guys, um, based on social standing, the most eminent duo were the Duke and Duchess of Westminster. Um, at the time, there were only 28 Dukes in the United Kingdom. He competed in the power boating, and she sort of snuck her way into competing in the yachting. Some, um, some authorities don't give her Olympic status. Some people say she was a passenger. So 
Uh, I, I've given a full status. Uh, Hugh Grosvenor, extremely wealthy man, uh, his ancestral count, country estate in Cheshire, the 54-bedroomed Eaton Hall, uh, was set in over 11,000 acres of parkland, gardens and stables. And the, the, the main residency had uh, works by Goya and Rubens and, and Rembrandt. Um, but in addition, he also owned a hunting lodge in Scotland and France. And for sea excursions, he had a choice of two sailing vessels, the Cutty Sark and a yacht called the Flying Cloud. In addition to that, for ground transportation, he had 17 Rolls Royces, a private train built so that he could go from his Eaton Hall directly to London to Grosvenor House, which, as most of you know, later on became the American Embassy. So extremely, extremely wealthy man. Uh, but not um, as wealthy as rackets player John Jacob Astor V. Um, we can see him down there. Um, He's a descendant of one of what is considered to be the world's richest family at the time, and is probably the wealthiest Briton to have ever, ever won a gold medal. Uh, continuing this illustrious group, we've got Earl Lytton, Neville Lytton, later the third Earl of Lytton. He'd been born in India and his father had been uh, the Viceroy. And another um, Jeu de Palme player, real tennis player, um, uh, Palmer, uh, the son of the Biscuit, John, um, uh, son of Huntley and Palmer's, the Biscuits people. And then Lord um, Howard de Walden, who later became fourth Baron Seaford, who at one time was dubbed Britain's wealthiest bachelor. Then there's a Scottish sailor, Sir Thomas Glencoats, uh, and later elevated to Baron Glencoats. Again, you might know he had a huge Glasgow firm and they were the world's biggest producer of thread. And then there's a polo player and later MP for Mid-Norfolk, who's Jack Woodhouse, later third Earl of Kimberley. So we've actually got quite a lot of very wealthy people there. But as I say, only about 10% at a push, although disproportionate. And the other people I've, I've highlighted, although not um, perhaps in the same league in terms of wealth, but certainly in terms of prestige, you've got brothers and sisters Archers, Lottie and um, uh, a brother, William Dodd. And they could trace their ancestors back to Sir Anthony Dodd of Edge, who commanded the English archers at Agincourt in 1415. And then finally, in this rich group, there was a motorboater called Winchester St. George Clowes, who was a descendant of Henry VIII. Then what I did was I said, OK, those are the rich people. Let's see who are the poor people. And I decided the poor people uh, by doing a similar thing to Tony Collins and saying, did they work with their hands? And I then tried to defend that even more by saying, where did they go to school or did they go to school? Um, and if so, for how long? And amongst the people that I would put in the lower classes, if I know there's a debate over what a class is, but let's say people who work with their hands have had little education, formal education, and who aren't um, titled. We've got this chap first, top row, top left, Henry Taylor. Um, he was actually the top, he's a swimmer, and he was the top medal winner at the Games. Uh, his father was a coal miner, uh, and his mother, Elizabeth, uh, also worked. Something you don't, if you see a poor family, 
normally both parents work even after marriage it's quite it's quite quite telling anyway both of these died quite uh, when henry was quite young and he was raised by his brother uh, he became a mill worker and money was was so tight that he actually trained in the canal he could only go to the public baths on what was called a dirty water day and that was on the days just before they were about to empty the bath and put fresh water in his lack of formal education um, meant that when he was on tour, he often had to ask other members of the team to write letters home for him. After retiring from sport, he ran a pub, but it didn't work out, and he had to sell all his trophies and medals. Uh, he died in obscurity, aged 65, on the 28th of February, 1951, penniless and unmarried. Next to him is one of the rugby players, Bert Solomon, the son of a miner. He left school at 12 and got a job in a bacon factory. I think actually on the census, he says he's a lard scraper or something. Um, and although he was selected to play for England and indeed the British Lions on a number of occasions, uh, he declined because he felt intimidated by his wealthier teammates, who he said came from a different class from him. How he came to be chosen for the Olympics, we'll return to in a moment because it's, there is an element of serendipity about all this, particularly the rugby. Uh, next to him, we have boxer uh, Dick Gunn, uh, and him and the rest of the family were orphaned at an early age. Um, and at 38, he became the oldest boxer. I think he's still the oldest boxer to have ever won a gold medal. And again, I'm going to return to that in a moment. But we can see here a sort of trend, can't we? You know, the poor people are the people who are playing rugby, an exception perhaps, boxing, wrestling, swimming, cycling. We've got two cyclists there. Um, the, the top right is Bill Pett, who was employed in the wine cellars at Harrods, uh, the wine cellars of Harrods. Uh, he used to work from eight in the morning till seven at night, uh, and he was never able to get time off work to compete in midweek evening meetings, so um, really hampered. By contrast, below is Ernie Payne, who was a carpenter, and he was only able to compete because his boss gave him time off work. And um, Ernie Payne, in gratitude, later bought him a gold watch to say thank you. So I've looked at the really rich and the really poor, and that leaves us with, with the middle groupings. And so the middle groupings I calculated, depending on which of those criteria I used, accounted for between 65 and 75% of the team. However, as alluded to earlier, this middle group was far more diverse. It covered a wider range of jobs, a wider range of education. So whilst across the board, as I've just said, um, the team may have been predominantly middle class, it's important to note there were great variations in the social makeup of the various sports. So surprise, surprise, polo, dominated by the rich. Most competitors had a title. Many had or were in the army. Um, I could find likewise the rich dominated motorboating, yachting, rackets and jeu de palme, you know, real tennis. 
In part, that's because of the cost and the social exclusivity of those sports. But there, there were a couple of other things which I might touch on, hopefully, if I've got enough time, towards the end. I could find no evidence so far of a single boxer or a single wrestler competing in the Olympics who came from a titled family. And yet, as ever, there were exceptions to this general social makeup of the various sports. Particularly notable was a poultry salesman, Harry Blackstaff, who managed to compete in the upper middle class world of rowing. George Shannon Dockrell, the son of Irish MP Sir Morris Dockrell and noted suffragist uh, Margaret Sarah Dockrell, who competed in the generally lower middle working class sport of swimming. A diver and architect, Ralph Errington, who was brought up in a wealthy household in London's Regent Park. Again, most of the other divers are from poor families. And Dr. Gerald Bradshaw, a naval surgeon who took part um, in, in the wrestling. I want to just pause for a moment now and highlight some of the other observations away from class that I discovered before returning to offer some explanations, which is what I'm currently working on. Of course, one of the most striking observations were how few women there were and the limited number of events they competed in. Olympedia, a website that lists Olympians, says there were 39 women in the British 1908 team, while my study puts it slightly higher at 42. The 1908 British contingent was a vast increase on the solitary competitor Charlotte Cooper, later Sterry, who competed in the 1900 Paris Games, but this trend didn't continue. Only 11 British women competed in the 1912 Stockholm Games. Although the British Olympic Committee had made plans for women to compete in only three sports at the 1908 Olympics, archery, lawn tennis and skating, as Martin Polly has observed, seemingly by accident, two women, Frances Rivet Karnak and the Duchess of Westminster, competed in yachting, and another, Sophia Gorham, in the motorboating. Another broad observation was where the athletes had been born. Of the 709 for whom it was possible to find information, most, 671, were born in the home nations. There were 539 from England, that's about 72%. 60, that's about 8% from Ireland. And 52, that's about 7% from Scotland. And finally, 21, that's about 3% from Wales. So based on a very crude expectation of representation using the census returns of the number of people living in each of these countries in 1911. This has the English component slightly higher than it should be uh, at the to the detriment of Wales. This bias, I believe, was in part due to the politics of how selectors chose athletes, something I'm going to return to in a moment. Still with birth pace, 25 athletes have been born in the big nations of the empire. So that's 11 in Australia, about 1%, seven, again, 1% in India, four, that's about half percent in South Africa, and two in New Zealand, one in Canada. The other 12 athletes have been born in 11 other places, including two in Guernsey, uh, and one apiece in Bangladesh, Barbados, the Falkland Islands, France, Greece, Guyana, Portugal, Russia, Thailand, and the United States. There was an age range in the team of more than 45 years from Eric Seward, who was 
uh, involved in the 100 metres backstroke, who was just over 17, to Charles Keane in the archery, who was just over 62. The women's range was slightly narrower, 36 years old, uh, 36 years, from 22-year-old Ina Wood to 58-year-old Emily Rushton, both of whom competed in the archery. Um, based on the 638 competitors for whom it was possible to find a date of birth, the modal age was 22. However, again, this was skewed by the high proportion of men in the team. So whilst there were 54 men aged 22, there were only two women of that age. By contrast, perhaps because of the small sample, the women's profile was trimodal with four athletes aged 27, three aged 37 and three aged 45. Um, it was very much an old people's game. Um, and many of these records still stand. So Harry Blackstaff here, uh, Sir Richard Gunn, still the oldest boxer. Uh, Harry Blackstaff, still the oldest, I think, individual to have won a rowing um, gold. Uh, George Hilliard in the skating, Josh Miller in the shooting, Queenie Newell in the uh, archery, and again, Edgar Sayers uh, in, the, in the archery. Interestingly, 106, that's about 14% of the team, had been to Oxford or Cambridge. And that rose even higher to 15% if you exclude women, because they were unable to graduate at the time from Oxford. Digging deeper, shows that 30 out of 32 of the rowers had been or were at Oxford or Cambridge, and that not a single boxer or wrestler, as far as I've been able to ascertain, even went to university. Um, also, perhaps surprisingly, and again, something I hopefully return to, is not a single rugby player in the team had been to university. That is an oddity uh, when you look at rugby at the time, but tells us something about the Olympics, I believe. Research also shows that 32 of the athletes, that's about 4%, had been to Eton. Five athletes, about 1%, had been to Charterhouse. But that together, the exclusive nine Clarendon schools accounted for at least 70 of the athletes. That's almost 10%. By the end of 1908, uh, 232 of the athletes either were or had been married, with the rate being higher amongst the women, 26. So about 60% of women who were in the 1908 Olympics for Great Britain were married, whereas only 206, about 29% uh, of the men were married. Again, this might be explained in part because there were a higher proportion of young men than women because of the sports that the men competed in. So it's sort of, it's, it's self-justifying self or self-perpetuating. Now, again, I don't know if this is some sheer statistical oddity uh, or whether it tells you something about the sport, but uh, most partners who were married were of a similar age, although numerous men had wives who were 10, 20, or even 25 years their junior. Um, and this is most apparent in the skating. 28 years separated Dorothy Muddock, who was 17 in 1899 when she married 45-year-old Herbert Greenhose Smith. He wasn't a skater. Whilst 19 years separated Edgar Sayers and his 18-year-old bride Madge Cave, whom he married in 1900. 
A decade separated 18-year-old Phyllis Squire and James Johnson, who married in 1904. But it doesn't end there. When another of the competitors, Herbert, um, and I don't know how to pronounce his, his name, he was born in Spain. Uh, when they married in 1909, he was 43 and his bride, 23, a 20 year difference. And finally, in 1921, four years after Madge died at the early age of 35, then less than a month after giving a birth to a daughter who only lived for 24 hours, Edgar married 24-year-old Eva Critchell, 30 years his junior. Um, as an aside, on the death of one of the women, uh, the family found out that the husband, in fact, was a bigamist and had a family, I think, in Spain as well. Divorce papers were found for seven athletes, although the figure was higher, um, and the divorce included the Duchess and the Duke of Westminster. And at least three athletes, I believe, were illegitimate, including them, including Louis Bruce, who I haven't touched on. Um, it seems Louis Bruce was the first uh, person of colour to represent Great Britain at the Olympics. He took part in the wrestling. Another sort of bizarre fact that came out, but I think is also quite telling, is that 66 competitors were close family members. And if you include reserves, it becomes even higher. And by adding those who became related through marriage in the years after the 1908 Games, the figure rises even more dramatically. Now, whilst it's not unheard of to have close family members in Britain's modern day Olympic squads, even given the size of the 1908 team, such a high proportion seems surprising to me and noteworthy. It seems British Olympic selection came from a very small section of society. There were at least 20 sets of brothers, including two sets of twins, Noel and Krista Chavas, and John and Dennis Murray, the latter of which were joined, believe it or not, by a third brother, William. Another set of brothers, John and Alex Martin, competed for Great Britain and Canada, respectively. In addition, there were a brother and a sister, three fathers and a son, one mother and a daughter. The list continues, six sets of husbands and wives, two sets of cousins, and five sets of brother-in-laws. Um, familiar uh, family involvement reached its zenith, I believe, in the yachting, in which the five-strong crew aboard the gold medal-winning yacht in the eight-metre class Cobweb included Henry Sutton and two of his brothers-in-laws, John Rhodes and Blair Cochrane, who were married to his sisters, Beatrice and Mary. Anyway. Having gathered my data and established uh, most of the, that most of the athletes were middle class, I'm now trying to answer why this was the case, how to account for the variance between sports and how to explain the presence of some working class athletes. And to do this, I'm first triple checking my facts, but it's a slow process. If I look at, spend one minute on each competitor, it takes me 13 hours. If I was to look at one competitor day, it's going to take uh, two years. Um, as, as Ray Vlamplew, I think, a, a noted, and I think I've got a quote here from him. No, I haven't got it there. Um, the reason so few historians take up quantitative history is because of the time involved. Uh, he says, quantification has a high research time word output ratio. Counting can be a laborious, time consuming, often tedious process with hours of work resulting in just one table or even a mere sentence.
Um, much has been written about sport and class in Britain during the late Victorian and Edwardian eras. And in particular, I'd like to highlight the work of John Lewison's Sport and the English Middle Classes, Derek Burley's Land of Sport and Glory, and Mike Huggins' The Victorians of Sport, whose work throw considerable light on why various classes took up various sports. Some of these reasons, the cost of various sports and the time to play them, access to clubs and associations and venues, together with restrictive rules and regulations often associated with amateurism, certainly, I believe, all played a part in dictating the class of athlete that represented Great Britain in the 1908 Olympics. But I believe they were not the major causes. I believe the major causes from which all these other causes flow was the makeup of the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, and that of the British Olympic Association, and the method by which the various sports chose their athletes. It was the highly aristocratic IOC that in The Hague in 1907 approved the proposed lists of sports that the almost equally aristocratic BOA suggested for inclusion in 1908. And as we've seen, it included a litany of rich men's sports, a smattering of what might be seen as middle-class sports and a number of what might be considered working-class sports. As I said, these included boxing, which despite its long links to the original Olympics, Baron de Coubertin was not keen to see included, but it managed to sneak in at the last moment and proved to be the most popular spectator sport. In addition to those that I've highlighted, other sports were suggested, but for a variety of reasons didn't eventually make it. They included flying, both in real planes and for model planes, bandy and cricket. There was a demonstration bicycle polo tournament, but plans for an ice hockey competition to run concurrently with the games never materialised nor did a suggested equestrian competition. Golf was on the original list and medals were even minted, but it got ditched after a massive argument with the Ancient and Royal. So we can see, because of the sports the BOA suggested and the IOC approved, from the start, the odds were quite highly stacked against anyone from a working class background getting chosen. They didn't have the money to compete in powerboating, sailing and polo, or even the less expensive lawn tennis. They had virtually no access to the facilities necessary to compete in figure skating, jeu de palm and rackets, and the rules and regulations excluded them from numerous sports, most blatantly rowing. Indeed, sometimes even having money wasn't enough. The fabulous wealthy Sir Thomas Lipton, who the Kaiser condescendingly described as the king's grocer, was famously refused membership of the Royal Yachting Association, and hundreds of women metaphorically found themselves in the same boat. As I say, how the athletes were selected is key to understanding the makeup of the team. The organising committee was very English and it was only after Ireland, Scotland and Wales complained that they were allowed some representation. Managing the aspirations of the various nations, especially given the trouble surrounding home rule, was always going to be a difficult balancing act. And the organising committee did its best to tiptoe around the problem, particularly when it came to team games. The water polo team was probably the most inclusive. It had five English players, one from Scotland and one from Wales. Only Ireland was missing. Elsewhere though, the story was rather different. Initially, it had been planned to have a combined Great Britain hockey team, but in the end, 
Ireland, Scotland and Wales sent their own teams. Um, the Guardian, it was said that this was a bit of a sop, but the Guardian believes that uh, the original idea for a joint hockey team was abandoned in favour of these home countries taking part because with the sport being in its infancy in the rest of the world, the contests would have been too one-sided. Ireland also sent um, a, a polo team. And uh, it's often been said that the reason these two teams were sent was because they were from the Anglo-Irish community and it didn't raise any problems over, over home rule. It had been planned to have um, all the, the nations, home nations compete in a football tournament. And um, in the end, that didn't happen. So Great Britain and Ireland were represented by just an English team. Uh, somebody's done some research into this, um, and it seems basically it was a matter of cost, and therefore they didn't, the other people didn't send teams. So again, we now get to the rugby, and basically all the home nations were invited, but for some reason never replied. And so the RFU chose Cornwall Rugby Football Club, the county champions, to represent Great Britain. Um, and as a result, it's an atypical team. Most people here are fishermen, carpenters, there's somebody who's a policeman, there's a couple of miners. Um, so that again skews the analysis of looking at the Olympic tournament. As I said, 30 of the 32 rowers have been to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, this again is slightly deceptive. The reason so many people from Oxford and Cambridge were there was because the selection committee decided whoever won the boat race was going to be one of Britain's racing eights and that as a reserve they would choose a crew made up of Leander representatives, people who'd formerly been at Oxford or Cambridge. The only real exception is this guy Harry Blackstaff. Um, he, he's had no formal education, he had a very, either he was a butcher or a, a fishmonger, there's some debate there, and I think he snuck in because he was a single scholar. And I haven't been able to prove it yet, but it seems that the Amateur Rowing Association chose all the crews apart from the single scholars crew. And so uh, he wasn't, it would seem, um, subject to the same level of scrutiny as some of the others. Having said that, he did compete at Henley. So... Um, he obviously had found a way around it. I'm going to try and sort of wind up, guys. Uh, in stark contrast here, we've got the wrestlers. You know, we've got Edgar Bacon, who's a chef, uh, a chauffeur. We've got Sidney Peak, a dental mechanic. George, who's a builder and decorator. Billy Wood, who's a commercial clerk. And John Slim, who's a clerk uh, in a brewery. Likewise, the boxers. Here we've got people who's a machine manager, a clerk, a you know, a news agent's assistant. One person who actually puts him down, himself down as a professional sportsman, a pugilist, Matt Wells. Now, I don't know how that stood considering the rules on amateurism, but um, there we go. I've, I've got a bit of a theory here as well um, that I'm working on. And it is that boxing was actually um, 
a university sport. In fact, I think I'm right in saying that Cambridge University Boxing Club is the oldest amateur boxing club in Britain. But my theory is that wealthy boxers or titled or privileged boxers feared that they would lose out in boxing competitions to working class people and so avoided where possible such a confrontation. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to prove that. And likewise, uh, I'm still trying to work on the athletics. There seems to be something quite interesting going on in the athletics where the universities, like all the short events, the sprints, um, whereas all the field events are taken up by Irishmen or Scotsmen, in part, I believe, because they had a background in Highland Games. And also you see that the long distance runners and walkers come from the north of England or from London. And again, my theory sort of there is that it was a bit of an anathema to, um, to university uh, participants. It, it was seen as bad form to train. And obviously if you're gonna do a marathon or if you're gonna do some of the longer running events, um, you've got to put in the time. And because they didn't put in the time, the others were selected um, because they did and were better athletes. Guys, I hope that wasn't too rushed. And um, I hope it does leave some time for some questions. There's, a, there's dare I say, a lot more I could have said. Um, and that was a rapid, a rapid run through. I'd love to hear any questions or perhaps more valuable for me, if anyone has got any suggestions as to what I should be doing or what I shouldn't have done, they'll all be taken on board gratefully. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. That was a very rich and uh, comprehensive overview, I think, of the participants in the uh, 1908 Games. Um, yeah, like you say, we do have some time for questions or, or comments um, to Eric. Perhaps while people are gathering their thoughts, I might ask you, um, has anyone done this kind of study looking at other nations' teams, not, not just at this Olympics, but maybe pre-World War I, for example, the early Olympics? No, not, not to my knowledge. Um, I mean, we're, we're very lucky because of how rich the census returns are. I'm not sure that other nations would have such a, um, a wealth of data. And we were all, I was also lucky, and one of the reasons I chose the 1908 games was because there were just so many competitors. You know, I think it would have been less valid if you only had 20 competitors, but the fact that there were so many and in so many different sports allowed me an entree. Um, what has been done is a look at the educational backgrounds of British competitors, uh, particularly since the end of the Second World War. And it seems that almost everyone is still public school or has had scholarships to schools. So not much has changed in that sense for 1908. I think there is a comparative work to be done because Britain, London, having hosted three Olympics, we could do what I've done. Somebody else could do the post-war and somebody else could do the more recent one. Um, and I think there, obviously, we're going to notice a huge rise in the number of women. Uh, we are going to notice the effects of empire uh, or the decline of empire. 
and more people coming to Britain, Britain being more represented uh, by coloured uh, coloured athletes. And if you could measure it, it might be more evident that there were more gay people. And then in addition to that, of course, we've now got the Paralympics. Um, I, I found no evidence of anyone who was deaf or certainly not blind um, or having any other disability that, that, that might, has, might have been obvious. So yeah, in short, no, to the best of my knowledge, nobody's done anything quite like this. Okay, we've got a comment in the chat. I don't know okay. if um, Stuart Paul would like to make that comment. If you want to unmute yourself, or I'm happy to read it out. It's, Do you want to read it out? If that's yeah, yeah I'm, I'm here. Oh, okay, uh, Paul. Yeah, go for it, Stuart. Yeah, my interest in this is I'm researching the history of my club, Virtual Harriers. Yeah, we've got roughly 100 Olympians over the years. Yeah, we had three in 1908. Three in 1908. Do you know who they are? Off the top yeah. Yep. Arthur, Arthur Robinson, uh, yep. who was a son of a doctor. So he had a quite a, a, a he, was, well, he was quite well educated, but he went to uh, private schools and so on. Yeah. Um, the um, Vincent Lolani, who was in the 15 meters final, he yep. was a, he came to us from Stoke. He worked in the pottery industry. Yeah. He, he was a, a worker. Um, yep. And the third gentleman who did the triple jump. Okay, that's unusual, yeah. Yeah, he was, um, that's Cyril Dugmore. He was an Irish or... Ah, oh, there we go, yeah. He, he, had, he had the Irish connections. He was in the army, I think he... Yeah. I think he was English, but he, 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 he was brought him in Ireland. So that was the link there. Um, Robertson won three, uh, won two medals. Um, and in the in the civil chase, he was beaten by a local athlete from Warsaw, where I'm living now. Yeah. Um, who was a brick worker. So oh, okay. So there's that that what, what you're saying earlier about the the, the origin of, of people in athletics. I think he's more has it. It does have Lord Burley and all that. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. Yeah. But it does have a lot of people from lower down the social spectrum. Um, yes, so, it does. Um, the reason I've, I've looked at our, our particular uh, Olympians over the years, um, so that's a you know, uh, looking where people came from. We have we've had miners, we've had people who've worked in uh, uh, other industries like that. So, um, so the whole the background, background is quite wild, quite wide. Sorry, the, my, I don't know if you're seeing the same screen as mine, but that's yeah. my email address up there on my mobile, if yeah. you want to screw it down. I've got your email, yes. Yeah, I, um, so I should have the census returns for each of those athletes, mm -hmm. for their parents from about 1881, so 81, 91, 01, and 11. Mm -hmm. And normally I started only doing the athletes from 81, because a lot of them hadn't been born by 81. Yeah. You know, so there's no point going back to 71. Um, and then, as I say, where possible, I've put down their, the, the father's occupation as on the census return, the mother's occupation, if there is one listed. Uh, I've tried to find their schools, their universities, and then I've been through things like who's who, who was who, um, uh, you know, all, all the sort of the gazettes to have a look at people being given titles. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, what you say is exactly right, that... Athletics was one of the more forgiving sports. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you also you see people up north complaining about the way trials are organized. Trials are normally held in London. Yeah. And, you know, it's costing them a lot of money to come down. Yeah. And they were saying, why can't we do it? Do it there. Yeah. yeah the, the, if I can help you with anything or, yeah. or if you want to send me something, um, who knows where it takes us? Yeah. 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 Are you going to write something or produce something? Uh, I'm for, I'm halfway through a book on oh, the great. yeah on the Olympians yeah. How long has the first half taken you? <laughs> About three years. It's with the yeah. COVID. Nothing else has slowed me down. Yes. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, we have a question from uh, Jonathan White. Uh, if you yeah. want to unmute yourself. Yeah, it's okay. I was just have a question actually about funding and going for trials simply because um, my MA research currently is into the, uh, the British Olympics in this time period. And you mentioned how the Irish and Scottish athletes ended up taking up most of, or taking up the field uh, events. Yes. Um, Do you just know like what the actual, anything you know about like the actual, the cost of attending these trials and how much that played a role in the makeup of really all of the teams or if, you know, being based in London and being wealthy really meant that you just had a higher chance of getting a spot because you could afford to make a trial. Yeah. So great variance. Let's start with perhaps I, I, I go off on a tangent for a little bit, but the yachting, they drew up all these different classes of race that were going to happen. And um, in fact, there was a really big size yacht race. In fact, no one entered. So they scrapped it. But the next size down only two yachts showed any interest in competing. And both of them uh, were doing different things when the Olympics happened. So they actually rescheduled the Olympics around these two boats. And rather than hold the big boat sailing race, as all the others were at the Isle of Wight, they actually held it up in Glasgow. So it's the only event held outside, outside of London. Other sports, were Selection was, was a different method. I've, I've sort of touched on the rowing, that it was based on boat race and on uh, performance at Henley. There, in lacrosse, there's, a, there's an annual North versus South tournament. So that was used as the basis. Now, on the athletics, it seems that there were a number of trials around the country. I've started to go through the newspapers. Um, But in short, I don't know the definitive answer there. Um, A lot of the Irish people who represented Britain were actually living in Britain. Um, And so for them, there was no cost in coming to trials. Well, you know, they didn't have to come from Ireland, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Um, I don't know if that helps. Oh, so you were going to say something about the athletics? Yeah, in terms of athletics, there were... The administration of athletics was all was in different parts of the country, and the Midlands had a lot of influence on the early three A's, um, and uh, three A championships were held in Birmingham for a lot a lot of times in the late eighteen eighties and nineties, um, and the Alexander family who built the stadium, uh, well, yeah, they they were a big influence on the Midlands. That's why we got. I think it was the Midlands area competing in the Olympics as well as others. Yeah, so it was a, a regional thing in that respect. And there were trials in the Midlands. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if I've the original. I'm not sure if I've advanced the original question much yeah. there. Um, as I say, it might be worth giving me a ring or drop me an email. Yeah, I'll do. It. I'll do. Yeah. Yeah. I'll anyway, go in a few minutes. You know, so, yeah, we'll let it touch. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. How are we doing, folks? Anyone else? Any other takers? Anyone, anyone further to ask any questions? Uh, Raf has got a finger up <laughs> in the air, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Um, hi, Eric. Um, hi, Raph. Yeah. Nice to hear you. Really interesting presentation. Um, I was particularly struck about what you said about the proportion of female athletes or competitors who yes. were who were married, and that being higher than the number of men who were married. Yes. Um, and you kind of you advanced a, a possible explanation for that. Um, it's interesting because um, it used to be that a lot of the literature in kind of sports history suggested that married women were less likely to be able to compete um in sport but your research is actually kind of countering that so i i just it just struck me as a particularly interesting finding yeah off, off the top of my head there um it's being based on the 1908 olympics and there's obviously lots of oddities about the 1908 olympics but i think one of the reasons um maybe there were so many married women or the percentage was so high was a, because there were so few sports they could compete in. So if we had a women's football team or a women's rugby team, uh, I think the proportion of married women would have been smaller. But as it was, they only competed in a few sports. Predominantly, in fact, they outnumbered the men in archery. And archery was a sort of like a, a leisured sport, if if. if uh, I mean, a, almost a recreation. And so I think there, that's how you get a high proportion of married women. There was a married couples circuit in archery. And um, um, so, yeah, and the other interesting thing about archery, again, it might just be an oddity of the 1908 Olympics or whatever, but almost every, almost every bloke was, um, a cleric, a priest. Most, lots of the women who played archery were married to priests. Um, it, become, it was a very priestly sport. And again, that might just be the oddity of how the teams were selected or how competition worked. Um, and on a, on a longer time scale, it's also very interesting that if you look at the parents and then you look at the children who are the athletes, there's a huge drop off in the number of people entering um, the church. And there's a vast increase in the number of people who are going into finance and industry. So it, the sport here, studying sport allows us, I think, to track the change in employment in Great Britain over that era as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you so much, Eric. No Great. Um, we're just coming up to seven o'clock, but I think we've got time for one more comment. So Matt's got his uh, hand up. Uh, do you want to unmute? Sure. Thank you, uh, Eric. Thank you for that that presentation. Um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on or have seen any of the evidence about the reaction to this increasingly diverse British Olympic team. I mean, certainly the socioeconomic diversity of the team is greater than I assume than the team in 1896, 1900 and 19. 04. And the reason I ask is I'm studying what how Americans here in the United States are reacting to the increasingly diverse 
American team in 1908, Johnny Hayes, the Irish American winning the marathon. And then of course, 1912, we have the Hawaiian swimmers and native American runners who do exceedingly well and help the United States. And so I was just curious if, if people are are commenting on the the growing diversity and see, here in the United States, it's celebrated as an asset of the democratic spirit of uh, what's going on here in the United States. And so I was wondering if there's anything like that going on in Britain in the reaction to how well Great Britain did at these games in 1908. Um, I don't know too much about the American perspective on the games. Um, but I know a bit about the English perspective of the Americans. And that is that they're taking this all far too seriously. Sure. They want to train. They want to win. Heaven forbid they actually cheer people and jeer and right. so on. You know? And then, you know, the famous story of, of the tug of war, don't you, where it's claimed, you know, Britain cheated, basically. Right. They, they all put on heavy boots and the Americans were just pulled over the line because they had like their plimsolls on. You don't see in the British team the diversity that you see in the American team. Britain is not as inclusive. It's still very much a closed shop. The Americans have a completely different attitude as to what amateurism is. And, um, and they are, as I say, more willing to train, to try different things. And then you've got the Germans who come along who take a similar attitude, maybe not so liberal in terms of um, in terms of amateurism, but certainly professional training, getting money. I mean, the British players have to have to pay their own way. Um, some of the people, some of the rugby players, a couple of the rugby players were offered professional uh, jobs afterwards, and um, you know, basically had to turn them down uh, to keep their amateur status. So, no, I don't, I, I think to say that Britain was becoming more diverse is certainly not the case. And then the team goes much, much smaller. You know, you know there'd been the St. Louis games where, although Britain always likes to say it was represented, it wasn't, it was the Irish who were there, you know. Um, but the team becomes smaller and smaller. Um, and it, you know, Britain never tops the medal table again. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Not, not even when, you know, the Americans boycott Moscow. <laughs> OK, so before I say um, thank you to Eric, I just want to flag up our next session, which is um, the same day, same time in two weeks time, um, when we'll have uh, Rob Coles, Professor Rob Coles, um, with his uh, paper titled The Fight of the Century, which uh, is around the fight between Tom Sayers and John Carmel Heenan, I think it was in 1860 from memory. Um, Rob Coles uh, won the 2021 Aberdare Prize for um, Sporting Literature, um, which is given by the BSSH. And I really recommend his book, The Sporting Life, which I just finished over Christmas as a preparation uh, to interviewing him. Um, but he that should promise to be a wonderful paper um, with a very, very good speaker. And he'll actually be at the IHR. Um, so if you want details of that and how to get there, then you'll find it on the website. But before I go, um, I want to just say thank you very much, Eric. Um, thank you for presenting on your research. It was a fascinating hour. And thank you also for fielding those questions. And uh, I wish you all the best uh, for future research. It sounds like you've got a lot more to do. Yeah. Guys, it's nice to speak to you all. 
contact me if anyone's got any queries, any questions or any suggestions. If not, maybe I can see you all for the next talk. Thanks a lot.